to Romans chapter 12, and we come to the second verse. You'll never give up anything in your life that you hold dear and precious. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't give up much more for. You'll never suffer for the gospel's sake in comparison to how he suffered for it. You'll never leave anything important in comparison to what he left for it. And what he asks of us to give, as Brother Eric took us through those four verses of the first song, he has given far more. Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the mandate for Christians of the New Testament. He has saved us so that we might live for Him. We do not want to be conformed. To conform is to form or shape or fashion according to some pattern or model or example. And we do not want to have our life shaped or formed so that it looks like the life of a worldling. The worldling being those people around us that do not truly fear God, that do not truly love God and love His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the epistle so far has been indicative in its mood, in the language that the apostle chose by the inspiration of God to write. But here, this is imperative. This is a command that God has given to us that we should not be conformed to this world so we should make sure our lives do not look like the world around us. We conform to the world, and you know we sometimes call it peer pressure. Because pressure is what makes something change its form. And so our peers are those in our social status, or those in our job, or those in our age group, or those that we go to school with, or those in the subdivision, or those in the sports league that we might be in, that tend to push us and pressure us to alter our shape. And our form, and we do not want to be conformed like that. You know, sometimes we conform to the world. This is when we violate this passage in that we change so that the world will accept us. And usually that's peer pressure. We want them to be, to accept us. We want them to approve of us. We want to be one with the boys. We want not to look so weird and different and have them isolate us. And so we're tempted to compromise and to conform our lives to look more and more like them. We want to participate in their goodies and have access to their sins. And so we adjust our lifestyle and we shouldn't. The world is after you. The text says, and be not conformed to this world. Now this is not a neutral situation that we're in. This is a war. The world is after you. The world cannot stand us being different, and it wants us to conform. It is not a non-aggressive enemy. It's not a neutral enemy. It is an aggressive enemy, and it hopes to capture you for sin. It is a kingdom under very intelligent leadership with a purpose to destroy your witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the intelligent leadership is Satan himself. This is an active war, and it is aggressive on all of its fronts, And we need to recognize that. It doesn't matter what the dupes that are obeying Satan think, though many do it quite satanically in their obedience of him. For example, compulsory education. Compulsory education is not a result of loving leaders wanting to help little children. It is a nation under satanic influence to make sure that all our children are taken for the devil instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to look beyond it and see the spiritual warfare that's taking place. There are spirits that are more organized and better organized than our own military called principalities, thrones, might, and dominion in the Bible. They are not seen on earth. They are the fallen angels and they hold rank better than we do. 
and they follow orders from Satan who has his own kingdom and is at war against the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ has won the victory and will formally declare the war over very soon. And we shall be heirs with him and judge angels, including the devil, with him. We'll be on white horses behind him who rides on a white horse, but he alone will have the name, the word of God. For example, television producers are not good people using a witty invention from Proverbs 8.12 for family entertainment. Hollywood producers are devil-possessed or devil-following designers of corrupt garbage to feed into our homes, to try to bring the world into homes, and to corrupt everyone's thinking to follow their lifestyle. That is why you cannot find a single faith-based production that they have ever put together. If you can find one or two exceptions... I'm going to enjoy explaining to you what an exception means and how it doesn't nullify a rule, but it establishes and proves a rule of what I just said. My generalization is absolutely true. And my generalization is true of 99.9% of everything they've ever produced. They are not innocent men and women using a medium for entertainment just to help people, families have a good time together. They are out to corrupt. That is why they are on the leading edge of corruptions like same-sex marriages and same-sex love affairs on television because they promote the agenda. They want to sell us. And we are not going to compromise with them, nor are we going to conform with them. We're going to stand against them. They want you like them. They want you liking them. And they want you approving them. But they will hate you, and they do already hate us. But they want us approving them, but they don't approve us. They want us liking them, and they want us like them, but they will never be like us, nor do they like us. They are enemies. And we cannot be, and we will not be conformed to them. They talk about freedom and rights incessantly, but they have never intended those words for Christians. They intend that for them that they should be able to do whatever they wish. The ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, you see them causing trouble all around the nation, but it's always for sin against righteousness. It is not for righteousness against sin. It is not for Bible-believing Christians against Bible-hating pagans. Watch their agenda. Watch where they get involved. Watch their rhetoric. Watch what they do. We're not all friends. We only have the liberties to continue doing what we're doing by the grace of God in this nation. And the Lord's been very kind to us, and let's use that kindness to live for Him, not to be fat, lazy, or spoiled. Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. Does that fit Romans 12 too? Be not conformed. He got conformed because he pitched his tent toward Sodom. He didn't pitch his tent in Sodom. He pitched it toward Sodom. I have been over the example of Lot so many times, but it is in the Bible for our learning. Jesus Christ himself would say, remember Lot's wife. She was corrupted because he bought a subdivision, he bought a house in a subdivision where he should have bought a house somewhere else. And it corrupted him. And it corrupted his family. It corrupted his wife. It corrupted his five daughters. Three of his daughters were allowed by his corrupt conduct to marry boys of the city of Sodom. So that the ten of them were one mess when the Lord Jesus Christ sent two angels into that city to burn it up. We don't want to be conformed. And it starts out in an incremental step. Many decades ago, I preached a sermon entitled Incremental Compromise. Because it takes one little step, then another little step, then another little step, and pretty soon you are living outside Sodom, but then you're living inside Sodom. Then you're engaged in city council of Sodom, which Lot was. Then your daughters are marrying their sons, and then your family is ruined. It's incremental compromise, and it starts by pitching toward Sodom. And we don't want to conform at all toward this world. We want to hate this world. We want to hate their music. We want to hate their entertainment. We want to hate their philosophy. We want to hate their thoughts. We want to take a stand on the Bible against them. And this mandate for us demands it. Be not conformed. 
to this world. The world hasn't changed. It hasn't changed as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. The violence between the righteous and the wicked was evident. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what did Adam do? Blame his wife. There is animosity bubbling and boiling in the hearts and souls and minds of the wicked. What happened to the first two boys born into this world? Was it because they had bad influence on the playground at school? Cain and Abel. Was it because they played violent video games? What happened to Cain and Abel? One was righteous and one was wicked. And it's been that way ever since. And the hatred and the violence and the commitment to war is deep and it's passionate and it is perpetual. And we've been chosen for the other side. Thank you, blessed God. To be a friend of this world is to be the enemy of God. I've preached that so many times and I hope that we live it. And we despise the world and what it does and tries to do to us. Consider the indignant answers you would have had to questions you would have asked Lot or his family before he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Girls, what do you think of incest with your dad? You say it's disgusting. Wife, why do you love your house more than you love the God of Abraham? Oh, I don't do that. What happened to that family? They pitched their tent toward Sodom. God has saved us to be different than Sodom. God has saved us to despise Sodom. God has saved us to live totally different. And may the Lord help us to conform our lives to what He wants them conformed to rather than what the world wants us conformed to. Are your clothes more based on biblical chastity and modesty or worldly lust and popularity? Is your speech based on Bible sobriety and graciousness or worldly impulse and frivolity? Do you outwork everyone in the job like the Bible teaches, or do you pace yourself like most? Does your marriage reflect only one standard deviation away from the world rather than God's high duty? You say, I'm different than the world. I'm a standard deviation away from the world. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. Or, does your marriage reflect the godly standard that the Bible gives? Do you use bodily exercise for the same reasons they do? Do you use their music and for the same reasons they do? Do you use their entertainment for the same reasons they do? Then you've been conformed to the world. God save us right now. Let's look and examine our lives where we might be conforming to this world. Is your church and you keeping a few steps behind the world but still moving toward worldliness? Being definitely different from the world but moving away from holiness is sinful conforming. Are you proud as parents that your children are not dope dealers? but they're not preachers either. We can't go practically out of the world, and we're directed not to go out of this world, but we can certainly be different in this world. Amen. We want to be conformed to the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, right. because that's what we were predestinated for. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 tells us. Now it says, Be not conformed to this world. God and this world are enemies. They hate God and God hates them. God and this world are enemies. So to present yourself to God, as we learn in the first verse, requires your opposition to this world because this world is God's enemy. The world is the kingdom of Satan, darkness, and wicked men, distinct from and opposed to God. The course of this world is Satan's kingdom, leading the children of wrath to ruin. The unregenerate masses of this world are being led by the power of the air, the children that, that worketh, the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. The world that we're opposing here is the devil and his conspiracy against the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in heavenly places. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The world is its ideas of origins, where we came from. Why were we created? Why do we exist? What are the priorities for our lives, the purposes, the pleasures, the politics, the programs, and everything the world has, it's of the world. We want our priorities to be different. We want our programs to be different. We want our politics to be different. We want to think differently. We want to speak differently. We want to live differently. We want our marriages different. They're encroaching on Christians all around us. Second Timothy 3, which I have preached to you in attempting to be faithful, describes the breakdown of ordinary Christians in the perilous times of the last days when they will give up the fight for holiness and sanctification and separation from the world and will compromise and be conformed to the world. John described the world and all that's in it. All that is in the world, and this is all that there is, the lust of the flesh, your bodily desires, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the lust of your eyes. This world goes after with advertising and marketing. They use sex to sell every single thing that they possibly can, knowing that the lust of your flesh running through the lust of your eyes will get you to open your wallet and buy things that they want you to buy. They know, they understand the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, though they couldn't find 1 John 2, 15 through 17 if they had to, because the intelligent mind behind them knows the verse because he understands the weakness of the human frame. And he has used those three temptations in Eden with Eve, and he used the same three temptations with the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. The lust of the eyes, it was fruit to be looked upon. He showed the Savior the kingdoms of the world in a moment. The lust of the flesh, it was a a fruit to be desired for food. Turn these stones into bread. There is nothing new under the sun. The devil doesn't have a new repertoire. He just approaches it a little differently. But it's the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Marketing. And just think of the lust of the eyes. What tele- We didn't have television in the past. My grandfather and great-grandfather didn't have to worry about a television. Did they do okay? Could they still enjoy a bowl of strawberries? Without a television. Could they still enjoy a wife without a television? They enjoyed their wife more without a television because they weren't looking at other men's wives on the television that had been taken ten times to get them to look better and that were stuffed full of silicone and covered up with makeup. The lust of the eyes, the internet, Facebook, even right down to layaway. You know, you get to take it home or you get to, you get to fondle it in your cart for an hour before you put it on layaway and you get to take it home. I mean, the world's got every gimmick it, it has to get us in our lust to do things. The lust of the flesh for adultery, drunkenness, fornication, gluttony, laziness, overtalking. Impulses of the flesh that we are to rule. This is part of the world and we're not to be conformed to it. It's the pride of life. Why do you get angry? Because you're proud. You don't get angry for any other reason. That's a generalization of all sinful anger. Because that's the generalization the Bible makes. Because you're too proud. Coveting. The pride of life. We want what someone else has. We want something better than what someone else has. Immodesty. You want to be attractive and you want people to look at you. You're implacable. That's the pride of life. No matter what somebody tries to do, you are not happy. Overworking. You know, when overworking becomes a sin and you're not practicing Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, it's because of pride. It's the pride of life. You're overworking because you want more stuff to make other people look bad and to make you look better. Because you want to be better. You want a higher position. You want a higher salary. We don't want those things moving us. We don't want to be conformed to that mindset. And you can justify it by saying, I have a good Christian work ethic. But you are sinning against God by being conformed to the pride of life of the world who measures success in life by the number of toys they have when they die. That's what their bumper stickers say from time to time. He who dies with the most toys wins. 
No, he who dies that has lived a life pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ and can stand before Him with a clear conscience and hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That is a life well lived. The Bible measures things. The Bible measures a successful life totally different from the world. And we must never get lost up and caught up, get lost in or caught up in their idea of a successful life. We want our successful lives to be based on the Bible's definition. Overspending. Because you just want stuff. Or you want to show off stuff. Revenge. Where does revenge come from? It comes from pride. Where does self-righteousness come from? Pride. Where does stubbornness come from? Because you don't want to be corrected. Pride. It's the pride of life. We don't want to be conformed in any of those ways. So we want to guard our eyes and not worry what we see because we walk by faith, not by sight. It's, it's not the lust of our flesh, it's the lust of our spirit. We want to covet earnestly the best gifts, the spiritual gifts, instead of the things of this world. We want to rule and put under our bodies, as the Apostle Paul did. The conflict between God's children and the world is ancient. Cain and Abel. It's deep. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ. It's passionate. They're foaming hatred of righteousness. And it's permanent. It'll never be erased. But it will have a victorious solution at the end when the Lord Jesus Christ defeats all the enemies of God. The Bible is so plain. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. James 4.4 James the Apostle writing to the 12 tribes of Israelites scattered abroad. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. And they weren't guilty of sexual sins, necessarily. This is a spiritual description. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. This world is the enemy of our God. And we should not be conformed to it. This God that saved us with such a glorious salvation described in 11 chapters hates this world and is going to burn this world up. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.5 The wicked and him that loveth violence, the soul of God hateth. Psalm 11 and verse 5. Psalm 7 and verse 11. God is angry with the wicked every day. David would say in Psalm 139, Do not I hate them that hate thee, O Lord. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. There has always been that conflict between the children of the devil, Cain, and the children of God, Abel. The flood of this, the flood that God sent in the days of Noah, according to Genesis chapter 6, were because the sons of God started marrying these girls. Go read about it. The sons of God married the daughters of men and violated God's way upon the earth, so he drowned the whole thing and started over with Noah and his family. You should be excited about hating this world, for it's God's enemies, and you love God this way by hating his enemy. If being a friend of the world is to be the enemy of God, then to hate this world and to not be its friend is to show our love of God and to be His friend. While the language of whoring is usually applied to idolaters, in James 4.4 it's just applied to those that are a friend of the world. That's why James wrote the words, Ye adulterers! What adultery? Spiritual adultery. We're flirting with God's enemy. God's finding us in bed, if you will, let me use that little expression, with His enemy. So we want to hate the world and all that it stands for in the way of moral issues. We're adulterers. We're spiritual adulterers. We're flirting with God's enemy. Every man should understand that. Every man should grasp that powerful metaphor of the Holy Spirit. It's used throughout the pages of Scripture to describe His church, His bride, His people. Flirting with his enemy. This enemy is so deep-seated, it started in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God told Satan and the woman that there was going to be enmity between their respective seeds. And while you might get excited about women not liking snakes, there's a whole lot deeper animosity than that between the righteous 
and the wicked that have flowed out of Genesis 3.15. And the Bible just goes on and on with this animosity between the two. And we're not to be conformed to that world. How can you contend with the world? The best way that you can fight the world is to keep the commandments of God, which is what the rest of this verse goes on to teach. The best way that we can fight this world is to obey God's commandments. Holding your hand right there, or I'll read to you Proverbs 28 and verse 4. It says this, They that forsake the law praise the wicked. When you disobey, you are praising the wicked. But such as keep the law contend with them. Amen. Thank you, Lord. He that doeth truth wants to be in the light. In the light there is no darkness at all, according to John chapter 3. There is enmity. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you're not suffering persecution for religious sake, you are not living godly in Christ Jesus. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, we are going to have opposition. Because the world and Christ are at enmity against each other. They crucified Him, and it wasn't the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Hittites, or the Aborigines of New Zealand. It was His own church. Israel, that crucified Him. Let our opposite-sex marriages and our families resulting from opposite-sex marriages be so good and so in accord with God's Word that we contend with the wicked and we shame them for their ridiculous liaisons, for their ridiculous combinations of two men and two women, for their insane perversity and abominable practices that even animals are wise enough not to engage in. How do we do it? By living our lives the way that verse 1 and verse 2 tells us to live. By the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Your marriage should be wonderful. And a wonderful marriage lived God's way is a constant reminder to them. Every time you young couples take your young children to go out for a meal, and there you sit a loving husband and a loving wife, and little children gathered around, well-dressed, well-mannered, well-behaved, behaving themselves in public, you are making a giant statement for the truth and integrity of God's Word and what is right and what this nation just a few decades ago believed in. But it's been corrupted. And that, that seed of corruption was always there. It's just burst forth now because the rules have been pulled off. You know, we used to say prayer in the schools. There used to be the Bible. There used to be the Ten Commandments. But they lift off those restraints, and there goes the world. Let our opposite-sex marriages and families mock their same-sex abominations. Let our beautiful, modest, and gracious women shame their painted, naked, and odious whores by having godly women that live godly, that aren't trying to make up for the lack of character with makeup. But they're beautiful with good works, which the Bible says is in the sight of God of great price. A woman that is known for good works as a wife and a woman. As simple as it is, here's the simplest that I can think of. Let us pray boldly and thoroughly to bless our food even in public places. It should give you a little bit of pleasure to make anyone else in there with the slightest bit of conscience left that they should have given thanks for their food before they ate. Now we're doing it for the Lord's sake. And we're thankful for the food before us that we're about to eat. But you should never be ashamed. If you're ashamed to pray in public, then you're being conformed by this world. We bless our food before we eat. That's the simplest thing I could think of. And it extends right through our lives. Where are you modifying your life to look more like the world, to participate in their goodies, to be accepted by them, or because you're afraid of what they say a person should be like? They don't have a clue about any aspect of moral existence. Not a clue. They don't know anything about marriage. Sticking two men together in a marriage bed, and they're going to call that the enlightened age of the year 2013? And on and on we could go. But be ye transformed. Instead of being conformed to the world, we are supposed to be transformed. Because God saved us. When He saved us, we were worldlings. 
We were walking according to the course of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. Paul says that. Paul says in Titus chapter 3 about himself, he says this, For we ourselves were one time, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. See, that's how the Lord found us. With that ugly, corrupt nature inside that would do anything the world does and would love doing it. But He saved us and He wants us to be totally transformed away from that world and to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need a metamorphosis. God has made some very unique creatures in this world. Maybe you can be thinking of a caterpillar turning into a beautiful butterfly. But it is a dramatic change. It is not some little change in color. It is a complete change in structure, habits, instincts, abilities, shape, limbs. It's amazing. It's a picture. We want to be transformed. Just like a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. We want to be transformed to be conformed to Christ and look like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the educational process of conversion that does this. As we learn more and more of what God wants for us, we put it into practice. He's given us the regenerate heart and the regenerate mind that wants to do it. Now we should choose to do it. And so it's a daily effort to put off the old man, that is the one that lives like the world that we had before we were saved, and to put on the new man which was given us by the Lord Jesus Christ and live that way. And it's a daily war. The world wants us to keep the old man on. See, we've got an old man. The old man loves the world and the world loves the old man. The old man loves the things of the world. And the world likes to offer the old man all of its things. And we get distracted and pulled astray and run off into a ditch with it. But we've got to put on the new man. And it's what this verse is telling us to do. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Consider some examples of how your family and you can be transformed different from this evil world. The world lives by what it sees and feels. We live by what we believe that is out of sight. Listen, the world is so ignorant and stupid that if they can't see it, they can't believe it. The most important things in the universe can't be seen, so they have already made a choice in their ignorance and stupidity and rebellion that they are going to deny the existence of the most important things so that they can believe the existence of the least important things. And that's what you can lay your eyes on. If you can lay your eyes on it, then it requires a physical existence, which is really trash. Because our God and the things that He makes are invisible. You know, there's angels in this room right now that have greater power than any standing army in this world and could defeat any standing army in this world in one second. One angel by himself. And they're invisible. The most powerful beings that we know about are in this room right now and you can't see them. But see, the world says they don't exist because I can't see them. Mother Teresa's their angel because they can see her. And so they're just all confused. And so we can be transformed away from the world just by going through all kinds of different things. We look for Christ's glorious appearing. That's the next big event that we want to be looking for, Jesus Christ coming back. And we want our families to be looking for that. What are they looking for? The next iPhone. What's the next iPhone for? For Apple to rip you off. That is why there is another iPhone. It is for Apple to rip you off by making you discontent with the Apple that they now tell you is outdated and obsolete. See, I learned this before Job's was even born. Because Detroit was a master at it. Planned obsolescence in automobiles. Bring out a new automobile model with little buttons to push on it that the previous model didn't have so that you would be discontent with the vehicle that was serving you quite well. They're looking for stuff in this world. They're looking for stuff they can get their hands on. They're looking for stuff they can get their eyes on. We want to be looking for what we can't see. It's the most important event that's going to come and it's not the unveiling of a new iPhone. It's the Lord Jesus Christ coming. 
But you know, we have this old man. We have this flesh. And we have the world marketing and advertising this stuff constantly, bombarding us with it. And everywhere we go, people are pulling out and flipping their little flip phones and playing around. And we I've got to have one. You know what we've got to have? We've got to have a righteous and a holy life. When we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll say, well done. That's what we've got to have. And we can only get it by being transformed away from this world. Our affection is on glorious things above. Their affection is on this dying earth. They deny the existence or relevancy of God. Let us see and praise God in every part of our lives. I'm sorry if I jarred your senses with my strawberry illustration, but I want to see God in everything. I can't believe crepe myrtles. I want somebody to tell me those 14-foot stalks of corn in Iowa, how many weeks does it take for them to do that? Because I want to know how many inches a stalk of corn can grow in a day. Because when I look in my backyard one morning, it is significantly different than the previous morning. And you say, why are you off on agriculture again? I just want to see God in everything. They don't want to allow God anywhere. I want Him everywhere. And so, sunshine and mud make strawberries. And to make the strawberries sweeter, you need a different kind of mud. I know you wish I was recorded all the time. They are petrified by death and any thought of the afterlife. We should be excited by death. And the opportunity to depart to something far better. Now, Now listen, I have the same flesh you have. Is there part of you right now saying, I don't know if I can get excited about death. The Apostle Paul said it is far better to depart than to be here. Right. What's wrong with him? No, okay, nothing. Then something's wrong with us. Right. If we got our perspective in the right place. And do you, know, do you know the only way you can get your perspective in the right place is to follow these two verses. In the light of God's mercies and all he's already done for us, what do you think he has in store for us? Do you think you're going to be disappointed when you get to heaven and want to go to the merchandise return counter and give back <laughs> eternal life? It's, oh, it's, it, the Bible doesn't even say much about it because what could he say to you that you would understand? So 1 Corinthians 15, some of you are memorizing about the body that we're going to get. How, he explains it as close as you're going to get to knowing what it's like. He just makes a lot of contrast. It's going to be superior to this one by every measure. Right. Being transformed. They emphasize the physical that has so little value. Let us value godliness that has such great value. They emphasize academic education of little value. Let us value character and spiritual. While they rebel against and ridicule authority, let us honor all authority and be thankful. While they stress self-love, Let's make sure that we stress loving others. Right. What's the greatest love of all, according to Whitney Houston, or her albums? What's the greatest love of all in the opinion of the world? Your self-love. Loving yourself. That is the worst love in the Bible. Right. That is the worst possible love. That is the most destructive love you could ever have, is to love yourself. First love is God's love toward us. Second love is our love toward God. Third love is our love toward others. And then when you're done with loving everyone else, including your enemies, then the leftovers are for you. Totally contrary to the Bible. But you know what? If we teach our children to get outside themselves and to love others and to love God and to understand God's love for them, they will be masters on the subject of love. And they will not get waylaid by the foolish things that the world calls love. You know, I can read Proverbs chapter 7 about the adulteress that seduces the innocent young man and talks about let us take our fill of love to the morning. There's no love involved in that whatsoever. That is lust and sin. Love is desiring the best for another person in the sight of God. And so it is serving them and helping them keep all of God's commandments so that they can stand before Him and be approved. There's so many different things that we can do. But it's by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How do we get transformed? By the renewing 
of your mind. Now God has made our mind new, but we make it new every day by choosing to think about the things that God has chosen us to think about and choosing to think about everything we encounter the way that God has told us to think about those things that we encounter. God the Holy Spirit regenerated us and gave us a new man. But Ephesians chapter 4, when it says talks about that new man that is inside us and is created in righteousness and true holiness, it tells us that we need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Right. Ephesians 4.23. When the book of Ephesians takes chapter 2 to describe being quickened, those Ephesian saints were born again. That's what chapter 2 is all about. But when it gets to chapter 5, and I had a, a young man in this church a number of years ago, preach on Ephesians 5.14, where it says, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. Now, wait a minute. I thought being quickened from the dead took place in chapter 2, and it was by God's grace in regeneration. It was. But there is another rising from the dead that we need to do every day. Have you ever said to yourself, I just feel dead? Well then you understand the metaphor that the apostles following, and sometimes we're dead spiritually, we need to revive ourselves. The Lord's already regenerated us, but we need to put that living new man on. The Lord's already given us light and brightness, and and He woke us from the sleep of death. But we're supposed to awake to righteousness in Ephesians chapter 5. And that's why I'm preaching right now, is to wake you up and to realize that this epistle of Romans, and you can like the first 11 chapters, or you can say that the 8th chapter is your favorite chapter in the Bible, but all of it is worthless if you're not going to live for Him. As far as you knowing, and it's worthless. Listen, God's going to do, and has done, the first 11 chapters, whether you believe them or not. But for that to have an effect in your life here... You need to keep the 12th chapter. We're in the second verse right now. And you need to renew your mind. Make your mind new so that you are thinking things the way God wants you to think them. Regeneration did not make David sanctifying choices to get every unbeliever and forward person out of his house. Regeneration gave him the conviction to do that. And then David, being a great man of God, did it, which Stephen gave to us last Lord's Day. Regeneration... does not fully instruct the mind. It convicts us to want to do what is right. So when John the Baptist preached in Luke chapter 3, three different groups of people came to him and said, after he had said, Ye serpents, what are you doing here at my baptism? Bring forth some fruits, meat for repentance. Three groups stood up immediately in line and said, What shall we do? The people, the publicans, and the soldiers stood up and, what should we do? And he told them. What should we do? And he told them. See, regeneration gives us the desire to ask, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And what will the Lord do when somebody says, what wilt thou have me to do? He'll give us the Bible to tell us what we ought to do. Regeneration didn't burn the books of witchcraft in Acts chapter 19. Regenerate saints being told that witchcraft was wrong and opposed to God and deserved to die caused them to bring their books out of their closets and homes and to burn them before all men. And the price of those books was valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. Those are real conversions. See, conversions in the Bible change lives. What's my job as a minister? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says that you and I are at war. And this warfare is not a carnal warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. And I'm supposed to pull down every imagination and thought that you have and bring it into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And I better be of a mindset about it that I'm going to revenge any disobedience. That's what 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6 says. And that's why we get rid of church members from time to time because they don't want to live a Christian life. That's the warfare that we're under. You know, if you say, well, if you say to me, well, you're just preaching that because you're the pastor. You have no idea how much I was sitting where you're sitting and I had someone else doing this to me and that I could go home and have the simplified, singlified life of just taking care of my family. But that's what the Bible teaches. It's warfare. I bring the word of God to bear against you. It's a fire and it's a hammer. I want to burn and I want to crush anything wrong in your life. And at the same time, I'm burning and crushing me because I'm up here preaching to you and have my own mind and my own conviction taking place at the same time, and I had it in preparing every sermon that I bring to you. Lord, have mercy upon all of us, speaker and hearer alike. You need to install a complete new mindset. 
That's why we love verses like Psalm 119, verse 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That is David. I want every one of you to love that verse and to live by that verse. I esteem all thy precepts, 31,101 verses, all thy precepts concerning all things, what I watch, what I listen to, how I wear my clothes, and how long my hair is. Oh, did I get the ire of a woman recently. By just slipping in to one of my proverb commentaries, the short little expression about the world liking short hair and short skirts on women is something chic. Oh, Christian woman, you know, they have no idea because they never hear things like that preached. You think some man's going to get up in the pulpit and preach against short hair or short skirts? They just don't do that. Joel Osteen hasn't done that for a few months at least. (laughs) But we have to do it. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way, including short hair on women and long hair on men, because the Bible condemns it in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And how do we keep our heart? We renew our minds. How do we renew our minds? By whatever God has said. That's what we do. We don't care what it costs us. We want to be a living sacrifice. It may be holy, and the world's not holy, but we want to be holy. We want want to do it acceptably to God, which means we have to do it according to what the Bible says. It doesn't matter how well we know Proverbs 4.23. It doesn't matter how well we memorize Proverbs 4.23. It doesn't matter how much we like Proverbs 4.23. How do we apply Proverbs 4.23? Anything that is a stench in God's nostrils, we want to flush it. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That ye may prove Prove is a word that has so many different definitions, and it does not mean here to make trial of or to put to the test to try to determine the genuineness or the qualities of it. That's already known. It's in God's Word. We've already committed ourselves to it. Faith already tells us that God's Word is absolutely genuine. So it doesn't mean that. What does the word prove mean? And I don't want to take the time to explain it to you right now. I'm just going to tell you. And if you want to check it, you can check the outline and all the definitions that dictionaries give and how the word prove is used in the Bible. But the word prove can be summarized in the English language to mean to test, to experience, and to demonstrate. And I believe it means both of the latter two here. To experience and to demonstrate before the world God's perfect and acceptable will. And we prove it. We demonstrate it. When you prove something, you can also be showing experimental knowledge of it and demonstrable evidence of it being true. And that's what we want to do before the world. David didn't take the armor of Saul because he hadn't proved it. He hadn't demonstrated and had experimental knowledge of how to use it. And and on and on, I could give you many examples, and I do not want to distract you, and I understand the time, and I don't want you to lose the focus on the importance of these two verses being the mandate for your life and for my life and the life of this church. Listen, the fastest growing church in this area today, because it's Father's Day, has bought a 2013 Harley Softail Deluxe model, and they're giving it away to some lucky father that comes into one of their eight places of worship. I'm speaking about New Spring Church. Now listen, I don't know what book, chapter, and verse they got that out of, but it must have been Acts chapter 29 about the Ethiopian eunuch going back to Ethiopia and giving away his chariot to get people into church. That's where I think it came from. But you ought to hear the foaming, raving, lunacy of that church about how many are going to get saved today because they bought and are giving away a Harley Softail Deluxe model. That is being conformed to this world. They are no different than the prophets of Baal in their excitement about their God. They're no different than the, 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 the priests and the nuns of Rome in giving up things for their religion. Oh, they get excited too. They're no different than the fans of the Wolverines, the Michigan Wolverines and the football team that will fill a stadium with 115,000 people painting themselves maize and blue for a football team. All kinds of people do it for all kinds of reasons. But we don't want to be conformed to the world. We want to be transformed. And because we live in a generation of the perilous times of the last days, we are a very small minority. And our minority is going to get smaller. 
before it gets bigger. But it's going to get bigger. And it's going to get very big. And it already is big if you have eyes of faith to see the general assembly that we're associated with that's already in heaven. They are playing games. In my short lifetime, I can't believe what's happened. You know, Arminian churches, when I was a little boy, at least would open a King James Bible and they would beat the pulpit and they would preach about sin and they would preach against sin and they would preach holy living. Now they're giving away motorcycles to get fathers in and advertising based on a free motorcycle to get fathers in. Well, somebody will say, well, Paul said he was made all things to all men. How far do you want to take that? That ye may prove. We want to demonstrate that the will of God is what it says next. Look what it says next about the will of God. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The will of God for your life is good. That means it doesn't have anything bad in it. Corrupt, evil, painful, sinful, or troublesome. Nothing like that in it. When it says the will of God is good, it is beneficial to you, helpful, merciful, pleasant, productive, right, true, and wise. The will of God is good. And you should renew your mind and demonstrate by experimental knowledge and demonstrable evidence in your life that God's will is good. That is why my example of a godly husband and a wife loving each other. My wife's made this comment to me when we're out in public. We'll be at a restaurant, we'll look over at some table, and there's a man and a woman, and they're leaning over the table, and they're playing with each other's hands, and they're looking in each other's eyes with great affection. And she says to me, they must not be married. Isn't that sick? Is it generally true? Yeah. Pitiful. Let's blow that apart. Let's show and demonstrate the will of God in marriage by the way that we live with our spouses. God told Moses to tell Israel, and Moses did tell Israel, that these statutes and judgments I've given you are for your good always. For your good always. And that's the Old Testament. You know, you look through the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you think, boy, that's a lot of rough rules. But you know what? If you live that way, it is wisdom. It is pleasure. It is righteousness, and it is good. Moses told the fathers that when your children ask you, Why do we have all these statutes and judgments? Remind them that we were in Egypt and God saved us out of them and he gave us all these statutes and judgments judgments for our good always. The will of God is good for your life. The Bible says his commandments are not grievous. What God has laid upon us is not grievous. If you do things God's way, you will have the greatest satisfaction and fulfillment for your life. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is only when you're in the flesh and you're looking at what he's asking of you that you think it's heavy. If you will make the choice by faith, Lord, I love you and I thank you for what you have done for me and I will give up anything for you. And I understand that the Bible says this and this and this are wrong in my life. They're gone. If you'll do that by faith and live for him and replace those things with spiritual things in your lives, you will look back and say, why in the world was I ever attracted to them in the first place? But you've got to make that leap of faith to find that true. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable. Acceptable means it pleases God according to His rules. It's acceptable to God. Paul's already used this descriptor in the first verse, and we already defined it. For something to be acceptable to God, it's got to be done His way, on His terms, and by His definitions. We cannot define things our way. We cannot lay out terms or restrictions or parameters for what we think is right, just, or good. We've got to submit ourselves to Scripture. Scripture only is what is right, good, and just. Nothing that we come up with. It is what the Bible says. That's why we esteem all His precepts concerning all things to be right, and we hate every false way, because we want God's opinion in the matter, not our opinion. The world's coming up with all kinds of opinions. The world's coming up with opinions that we came from a big bang and all the order and reproductive power in the universe and all created things is from a bang of cosmic gases. Unbelievable that we came from monkeys. That two men in bed are a marriage. On and on they go. That the Bible isn't is a source document that should not be used in any paper. On and on they go. We want to define everything by God's Word and find its acceptability there. What, is the, what does it say? We ought to be thankful saints because that's acceptable to God's will. Right. In everything, give thanks. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You can know something that giving thanks is very acceptable to God. That is the will of God for your life in Christ Jesus. To be thankful. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, but rather giving of thanks is what should characterize our speech. The Bible says all this. You'll be happier if you're being thankful all the time. Instead, Americans whine all the time and complain all the time. They do often. And we have more than any nation has ever had in the history of the world. We're blessed abundantly. But these are the, this is the acceptable way of showing, this is the acceptable will of God that we ought to demonstrate by experimental knowledge and demonstrable evidence in our lives by practicing it. Show it to others. That's how we prove it. That ye may prove by demonstrating it. What is the good? and acceptable, and perfect will of God. It's perfect. It's not incomplete. It has no confusion. It has no defect, inadequacy, or ignorance in it. It is consistent. It is finished. It is proportionate. It is sufficient. And it is thorough for our entire lives. And we should demonstrate that. We have the answer to every part of life in the Word of God. And God has saved us as His children and given us this manual of what He's done for us and what we can do for Him for our good always. It is when we leave this Word that we find disappointment in our marriages, disappointment in our souls. All the answers are right here. We want to demonstrate it to the world. We want to be conformed to Christ and to the Apostle Paul. We want to be transformed away from the world. We don't want to be like the world. We want to be like Christ. And we want to demonstrate that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect in every part of our lives. It answers everything. It tells us how to work on the job. It tells wives how to work at home. And it tells them when to go to bed. And you heard that this morning from Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. The Bible addresses everything. It addresses your spirit. It addresses your attitude. It addresses music. It addresses hair length. It addresses addresses clothing. It addresses bodily exercise. It addresses everything. And let's demonstrate it to the world. God has saved us to be His children. We are a microcosm within this world of God's children. We are brethren with the Apostle Paul and those that have gone before us. And let's live like it. And it's the will of God. The will of God here is much more than trivial items like your job, your profession, Your spouse, your car, your house, you know, we call all those things the will of God. That's not the will of God here in Romans 12, 1 and 2 at all. The will of God here is that righteousness and holy living that is taught from cover to cover in the Bible. And much of it's taught right here in Romans chapter 12 in all those short little expressions that are coming up in the next few weeks. Fervent in spirit. I hope I've been so today. And I hope that you are right now. Fervent in spirit. There's only one way to serve this king. Fervent in spirit. He deserves fervency in spirit. He could go and pray all night for your soul. Can you show him some fervency in spirit? And so we'll, we'll go through Romans 12 and see the will of God right in this chapter listed for us in some very short phrases impacting all different parts of our lives and how we can live for him as the children of God in a condemned and wicked world. What did the Lord require of thee? A thousand rams? Ten thousand rivers of oil? Your firstborn? The fruit of your own body? Your your own children? That's what pagan gods want. They want child sacrifice. What does our God want? To do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Three things there. A few things in Romans 12. He wants us to be conformed to His standard of what is a good life. He saved us. He saved us for a purpose. He saved us to have children that look like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to own us as brethren soon. I've said all these things today. This is the mandate for how Christians are supposed to live. This is the mandate for our religion. Amen. You like Romans 8? You like Romans 11? You like Romans 9? You like appealing to Romans 9? Just make sure you understand its place. In Romans 1 through 11, God was declaring what He has done for you. In Romans 12 through 16, He is appealing to you about what you're going to do for Him. And He's told you what He wants you to do. And it's, you know, at break time, we were wondering if Paul writing, which is your unreasonable service, 
if he was being sarcastic. Because to even put it in words like that doesn't even seem fair. Because after 11 chapters of what God has done for us, it is obvious we should do these things and more for him. He deserves all that we could possibly give him. And these things that he's asking of us actually lead to us having better lives here, better lives there, and pleasing him. It's win, win, win if we do things the Lord's way. No one wants to do this today. And to the degree that you don't want to do this and to the degree that you don't like this sermon, it's a reflection and a symptom of the times that we live in, but it is not a symptom that you should allow to exist. Right. And you should turn your laughter and your happiness into, into mourning and fasting for you to be convicted by these two verses that we live our lives this way as the children of God in this wicked and corrupt world, generation and nation in which we live. Let's be lights that shine right. for the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word.